Hello and welcome to Revise, Rebut and Resubmit, a podcast that explores early career researchers' experiences in publishing their first academic paper and which celebrates this important milestone. My name is Jennifer Fitchett and I'm an Associate Professor of Physical Geography, an avid science communicator and a still relatively young academic with a passion for breaking down the barriers and unnecessary mysticism in the publication process. Each episode, I interview a new person on their journey in writing, revising, rebutting, resubmitting, and having their first academic paper published. This podcast is very kindly supported by the DSI-NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences. Professor Leslie Swartz is another somewhat unusual guest on this podcast, in that he published his first paper many, many years ago. With a Google Scholar H-Index of 62, Leslie has been incredibly successful in his academic writing and has certainly walked the road of revising and resubmitting his work many times. Today, he is the editor-in-chief of the South African Journal of Science and holds not only one, but two PhDs. While the majority of Leslie's own publications are in the field of psychology with a focus on disability, he has also stepped outside of the traditional academic publication space and written two memoirs. I'm particularly excited to speak to Leslie given his role at the South African Journal of Science and his continued engagement as an author, a reviewer, and an editor, switching hats between each of the roles in the process of revising, rebutting, and resubmitting academic work. Welcome, Leslie, and thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you very much, Jen, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So, Leslie, the first question is, Can you remember your first academic paper and the process that went into having that published? Goodness me, um, it's literally, is it 30 years ago? Uh, 40 40 years ago. Anyway, so it's many, many, that's 40 years ago, (laughs) Um, more or less. Um, Yeah, it got published in, I think, 1982. How many years ago is that? Yeah, that's Um, 40 years ago. 40 40 years ago. Um, Can you think of all the generations that have happened between them? (laughs) It's one of the wonderful things about having published for so long is I know what I thought 40 years ago. Um, I don't know what I thought yesterday. (laughs) um, I have a a kind of a record. So the first paper that I ever published was, was actually I was an honors student, a very cheeky honors student in psychology at University of Cape Town. And I took one of the essays that I'd written, it so it wasn't an empirically based piece, it was a think piece, and I sent it to the South African Journal of, of Psychology, and um, it went through two rounds, I think, of, of um, peer review, and I remember one, one piece of the, of the peer intervention, it was, it was accepted, I was, I was very lucky, but but I remember thinking, I wasn't sure about one of the things that I said in that piece. Um, and it, it had to do with Skinner, who was a very famous person in the history of, of uh, psychology. And uh, I, I said something and I wasn't sure whether this was factually true. And I, was, and I thought to myself, it's being peer reviewed. The peer reviewers will definitely know whether, whether this is, is true or not. And I mean, little did I know, I mean, I've, I've never checked it up, but actually quite often peer reviewers don't. Um, yep. <laughs> they, 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 they don't know everything. And you're not sending your paper to you know, somebody who knows absolutely everything about the field. But I had that kind of fantasy at the time because I didn't know what the world was like. But luckily it was a, it, it went through a few changes, but it, it got accepted, which I can't say for every paper that I've ever written uh, since. Yeah. 
<laughs> I mean, that's incredible. What was the topic of the paper? Well, it it was um, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. It uh, yeah, it was forty years ago. No, but I was I was very interested in um, B. F. Skinner was a. I mean, he was a sort of interesting figure in the history of psychology, and he was uh, the founder of what was known as radical behaviorism, which is very important historically in psychology, but no longer a very prominent theory at the moment. And Skinner thought that psychology should be structured very similar to the physical sciences in some ways, and so that we should have no interest in what goes on between people's ears, in people's brains. We, wow. should, we should only be looking at observable behavior. It should be an observable science. And what I was interested in, um, I was fascinated with him from, from being an, an, an undergraduate because it, it felt so completely absurd to me, this idea, but, but I mean, he was, he was brilliant. But, but wrong, um, and and I, I was sort of interested in in how he historically how he got from um, emphasizing operationism, which is an you know important part of of science in general, saying that part of how you def define anything is through a series of operations. How he got from there to the design of utopias. So he he wrote a book called Walden Two, all of which was des designed on and and established a sort of commune and so on. Um, you know, the, the idea of a sort of utopia based on behavioral uh, principles. So it, it, it was a sort of historical piece about the history of science, um, and I suppose it sort of betrayed my, my, my lack of a proper scientific identity even at that stage because I'd majored in, I'd done psychology and English and maths and statistics and <laughs> I you know, I was just interested in everything. But um, it was part of my interest that I can see now in the history of, of science and ideas, which obviously leads me to being the editor of the South African Journal of Science today yeah. so I didn't know at that time but uh, <laughs> yeah I, I can see the link now as I talk with you yeah excellent formative grounding and yeah. amazing amazing that it, it's from your honors and I'm hearing this over and over again from people who are really passionate about academic writing that their first works that were published came from their honors degree and today I hear so often and I, I'm often berated because apparently I set honors project topics that are too ambitious or too difficult and I'm unfair to my students because I then turn it into publication but I really think that it is a phenomenal grounding because yeah. that honors year is the point before you really understand academia and the dark side of it and I think <laughs> by the time you do a master's and, and a PhD you're constantly reworking and reworking and reworking and honors is the last time where you actually just throw something together and hand it in and see if it flies or not. And I think yeah. it's so amazing to capture that almost naive early thinking yeah. and, and then to have that on record and, and for us to be able to think back to it and go, that was my first paper. And, and that was yeah. the way that I approached yeah. the world at that point. Yeah. Was that first yeah. paper of yours solo authored then, or did you involve the yeah. lecturer of that course? No, it was solo authored. I, um, it had never occurred to, to me. I mean, it, it's also just an interesting time because it was, a, you know, I, I, I studied right up to my first PhD at, at University of Cape Town, which, as we know, is the sort of premier university on the African continent and publishes a lot, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, this was, this was UCT. Nobody in the psychology department, none of the staff, 
were publishing at the time. Nobody. Um, There had been a period before, but um, it was a very particular, I mean, you know, we say the 1960s happened in South Africa in the 1970s, and I was an undergraduate (laughs) in the 1970s. So there was, you know, lots of experimentation with lifestyle and substances and all sorts of things going on. But my lectures were not publishing. And I remember it, it was considered so strange that I should want to want to publish. Um, so it, it didn't even occur to me. I mean, the, the particular lecturer of that course was somebody I admired hugely. Um, and he was hugely influential. I think about him. I mean, obviously, I mean, I'm old now and he was, he's, he's passed away. But, but um, it never occurred to me to to ask him i mean i have to say it was an essay that i wrote and i I just got like three lines at the bottom it wasn't a a piece of work that we set up together but three lines at the bottom saying good and you know whatever mark he so there wasn't much of an input but it it, i didn't have i think what you're trying to do jen i had no sense of a community there to support me and and i mean luckily that one got published quickly and then i then you know because i'm I mean, the other thing about publishing is that although I regard myself as a scientist, it's also a, a creative outlet. Yeah. It, you know, then, I, then I got bitten by the bug. And if I'd had some help in those early days of publishing, of people who knew the ropes, who could, yes, indeed, co-write with me yeah. um, from from psychology. I mean, I, I, I did get it because I worked quite early on in the psychiatry research unit with with other colleagues but it i mean then the 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 time that i wasted not through writing bad things but through not understanding the strategy that you need um i wasted a lot of time (laughs) let's let's put it that way Um, and i was lucky with that first publication yeah But I wonder also if it isn't partly the disciplinary difference. I've had many conversations with Robert Freeman, who we both know. He's doing his PhD at Oxford in English. And he talks about the fact that they write on their own and that there's such huge ideas around intellectual property and who owns knowledge and who develops knowledge. Whereas in the sciences that I work in, we are so collaborative. Uh, unfortunately, through through the DHET structures, we are encouraged to have fewer authors because yeah. then you'll get yeah. greater funding yeah. per capita. Yeah. But even then, having a paper that's authored by 10 or so people is very, very common. And, yeah. and having a very divergent set of roles in a paper from conceptualization of the study through to being the person who does one type of laboratory analysis yeah. and somebody else does a, a different yeah. type is yeah. very common. And I hear over and over again that in the humanities, that's so different. And I think psychology yeah. sits on the fence a bit. And, and because it's got that slightly scientific angle to it, that has got that scientific <laughs> <laughs> level of collaboration and, and approach. Yeah, in, yeah. in the research design, as well as, as the writing process, that you want collaborative research design, that yeah. you're not just sitting yeah. and thinking as an individual, and therefore all of the thoughts that you come up with are your own thoughts. And I think even that we could probably debate and, and say that yeah. no thought yeah. is produced in a silo. But I do wonder yeah. whether that's been a feature either back then, yeah. or, but also and how that's changed through the years for you in terms yeah. of co-authorship and, and collaboration. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I think there are a number of issues there. I mean, certainly there are disciplinary differences. And I mean, even I mean, I, I know that, that that you've just finished a manuscript for a book. Um, you know, it's, it's in, in some disciplines, having a book 
is absolutely central. Um, and in other disciplines, it, it, it's, a, it's nice to yeah. have, but nobody, no, nobody, really, nobody really cares. So uh, you know, if you're a historian, you have to have a book. And, yeah. and generally speaking, you'll, you'll, you'll work on your own. I mean, I've, I've uh, yeah, because psychology is such a strange field where we certainly go from, I mean, there's from the more literary, social science, humanities, right through to you know, very hard brain science and so on. You, you get absolutely everything within, within um, psychology. And I think there are the, the emphasis on individual um, contributions to, to knowledge and, and the idea that you have to be completely on your own and completely sort of original, which comes, which I think lingers in the humanities. For me, um, I, I, I do write, I still write some single author stuff, um, but I write much more together with, with other people, often outside of my own discipline, uh, you know, disability studies, where I work a lot is very interdisciplinary. Um, I think that that emphasis on the individual can be quite problematic, actually, yeah. um, uh, because it, 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 it foregrounds individual thought when in, when in fact we know that that ideas happen in conversation they have and, and anybody who's written collaboratively with a good team will know that I come in with my wonderful idea and my, my team members come in and what we end up producing is better than what any of us could have, have come up with I mean we've also all had experiences where you also end up going for the lowest common denominator so you all end up yeah. doing something that's worse <laughs> but I'm talking about teamwork teamwork at its best and I, I think that that emphasis on on the individual though very very important is often very problematic and problematic often for for new scholars who yeah. um who are not confident, who feel that they've got to do things on their own. There's this myth around originality, which I mean, I can talk about if you want me to, but, but um, which which is really problematic, and it it constrains, you know, people. I think in you know we we know if you if you look at bibliometrically at publication patterns, people who co-author or in disciplines who co-author write more than people who yeah. write on their own. I mean, that's just true, and and part of that is. Um, you know, all of the kind of problems that, that any author who's worth anything has had the, the imposter problem. I, yeah. You know, I'm not good enough. They're going to find out how stupid I am. The, um, I have to be completely original and change the whole world. When yeah. in fact, no academic ever wants to read an article that changes the world because then means that I've got to restart my project again because Correct. now the world has changed. <laughs> you know, the last thing we want is originality, actually. I mean, but all of those pressures actually are disincentives to writing, Yeah. paradoxically. Um, so mo most of what I currently do is co-authoring. Most of, I mean, I, I love writing on my own, but, um, and I felt at one point when I started writing memoirs, the reason I did that was I, f I felt I'd sort of lost my own personal voice because I spent very happily so much of my time writing with less experienced authors. Um, but I think there are huge advantages to making use of a, of a community of scholars and practice, which is the kind of thing I think that you're trying to do, Jen, on your, through your podcasts. Yeah, I think there are also a whole lot of misconceptions about multi-authored work being quicker 
which I don't think is true. I think it's that we are just so much more enthusiastic and we are so much more driven when we're in a collegial space. I also sit on the fence between the sciences and the humanities, particularly when I do work in in tourism. And I often hear that it's easier for me to accumulate more publications or more citations because I work on multi-authored pieces and they're quicker to write. And I say, actually, they're not. If if anything, the pieces I've written on my own have been much quicker because I don't have to engage with other people and I don't have to deal with the fact that we have different writing styles. We have different statistical approaches to data. We have uh, one of my colleagues and I ended up having countless arguments about air conditioning on one study because we were trying to decide whether or not air conditioning is a climatic feature. And those arguments alone, I could have written another paper in the time we spent arguing. And I think it's so interesting that there are misconceptions on both sides that that it's either so much easier to do it one way versus the other or so much quicker to do it one way versus the other when both have yeah. their, their difficulties as well as their advantages. And that it's, it's really comes down to the role of, of conversation and engagement with people rather than about a particular way of ticking a box of writing however many units you want per year. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I completely agree. And I, I do think that the... the um, you, you know the the subsidy system you know plays into this in a in a in a problematic way where you know if I write something together with another person suddenly after I've, I've written a half a paper yeah. when when often as you say those those discussions take much longer I mean I know having written at, on book length work um, I've written a number of books on my own and I've and I've co-edited and co-authored a number of books it's it's much easier and quicker to write a whole book on your own than 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 to edit a book, in my in my experience. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but in the system, it sort of counts for. In fact, editing a book, I don't think even counts for points or whatever. Uh, you know, in in the system, when it's much harder work actually than than doing something on your own. And I and I I think particularly at the moment. Um, not at the moment because we could, it should be at every moment. But you know, m- most people writing in science in English at the moment are not first language, and uh, we are we are and we should be trying to increase participation in in the sciences, increase the number of voices, um, open open up things, um, and that's that's. Should the only way to do that is through collaboration um, and and working together and learning from different perspectives, um, and that's I think hard to do if if all you do is write on your own. In, Absolutely, in yeah. but I think another yeah. interesting thing about the number of of multilingual and second language in particular, or third or fifth, fourth or fifth or sixth language English speakers writing in academic texts is that. I think particularly for those of us who are English first language, it's about releasing this expectation of perfection in terms of writing, because I think it's such a problem, particularly when we are in the sciences and what we're presenting is data, we're presenting empirical research on a topic and we need accurate writing, absolutely. But Mm -hmm. one of the things I've pushed towards in my own writing and, and when I'm collaborating with students of mine or postdocs of mine is just relaxing about writing style and saying there are many ways to say the same thing and some might be grammatically better than others and some might sound stylistically better than others but actually what we want to do is communicate a message to a particular public 
And I think it's one of the reasons why I find the South African Journal of Science so enjoyable to write for, because they have that very rigorous process of editing at the end of each paper to make yeah. those papers accessible to everyone. And so yeah. you're not talking yeah. within your very, very, very small community full of jargon and full of strange stylistic things that come in in particular fields, but it's breaking that down and saying, okay, but what is the story? What are we trying to communicate? What data do we have? What message can it convey? Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. also really important. And, and again, it's something that you build and you develop that understanding and that appreciation for a range of ways of saying things by collaborating with other people and by accepting that their writing approach is just as, as appropriate or acceptable as yours might be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, certainly in the history of psychology, but but not just in psychology, because I I see it in, in in other disciplines as well. I mean, the, the the added thing is for me is that there is this one of the things that you 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 sort of talking about is there's this mystique about that you know there is a particular way of scientific writing which is very different from other kinds of writing which is very different from talking and so um you probably come from disciplines i certainly do which which you know historically have favored for example the um the use of the third person and the passive voice which yeah. which i mean nobody talks like that yeah. and 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 particularly i mean and it's and it particularly it, it excludes people who are um who not first language. I don't think it's a mistake. I mean, there's a good, yeah. there's lots of scholarship on that about how all of these conventions actually exclude people. But I mean, who talks like that? So 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 people then start to try and write in a way that sounds scientific, which means big words, yeah. third person, passive voice, all of which is complete nonsense. I mean, our job is to communicate with right. with one another. And I mean, one of the things that I feel most proud about is is that you know I've got you know 40 years of publications behind me um and more rejections than you've had hot breakfast but but um the longer I write the simpler I write yeah um and it's a question of having that confidence just to, to be able to say as simply as possible what I want to say and that's where I do think South African Journal of Science, and I, I must give a or, or, or expand on your plug for us <laughs> because because we are this multidisciplinary journal. Yeah. We it is a requirement that that people from disciplines other than our own should be able to understand what we're writing about, and that is to be able <coughs> to make complex ideas accessible to yeah. people who do not share your background. That's what. You know, you know, that's the art of writing as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. So yeah, I, I completely agree with you. But I also think, you know, there was a point where you would go to the library and you would pick up the latest issue of a oh, journal in your yeah. area of, of, of interest and you would sit down and read through that and yes. read the articles that were in, of interest to you. But today everything's available on the internet. And I think that means that we are far less likely to just read within our our discipline. You're going to look up keywords and get a range of journals you've never even heard of. And for that reason, again, it's so important to write to a a general audience. Even if you're not writing for a journal like the South African Journal of Science, you could be writing a piece in, in my field for the International Journal of Climatology. But somebody could be reading that who has an interest in development studies because you're talking yeah. about the impacts of cyclone die on, on Beira. 
or it could be somebody who's coming from an education space or or any type of discipline yeah. who happened to pick up those keywords and sees the title and goes, well, that's interesting to me. And I think, you know, we, we have to break down yeah. those boundaries and we have to stop seeing this as being something that's unique to interdisciplinary journals, but that we write in a way that yeah. is, is as interdisciplinary as possible and that we try not to keep ourselves siloed in academia and make our work as readable by the public as possible. Because I think that's how you start to break down issues around anti-vaxxers and climate yeah. change denialists yeah. and all the rest is if if those people can google something and actually get scientific answers rather than the kinds of answers that tend to circulate yeah. in the internet so my next question is about the changes that have happened in the academic space over these okay. 40 years that you've been writing yeah. i think most people have come into a space where there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of journals and uh, there's a lot of discussion at the moment about open access for example mm -hmm. about uh, payment for services in the review space but really fascinating to hear how things have changed over time on both sides of the fence in terms of writing for uh, academic journals but also being involved in reviewing and serving as an editor on on scientific journals and how some of these things have changed over time Okay, well, the thing that's absolutely at the at the, the top of my head, and I think it's a it's a problem, and I mean, you're you're aware of this as much as I am. I I think is that I've been involved, you know, as a as an author, reviewer, and um, but also probably thirty years ago. I mean, I've been on editorial boards of journals for longer than that, but it's about thirty years ago that I first became an associate editor of a oh. of a international scientific journal um so uh, you know I've, I've been in this kind of an editor role one way or another in, in 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 different journals for for about 30 years and it has become i don't have the the data for this but but everyone's saying it's, it's got more and more difficult to get reviewers um to the point where it is not unusual if you want to get two reviewers to have to approach literally 30 people to get um to to reviewers that I'm sitting up, I'm still an associate editor on on some more subject specific uh, journals that uh, that I, I work on. Um, you know, I mean, last week, I, I think I was up to 22, 23 reviewers that I'd approached and I've, you know, I don't know if anybody's taken up uh, my request for for reviewing so some some couple of things um ar around what i see i'm not the only one as a as a sort of crisis in 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 um academic service part of what has happened is that um there is such an emphasis on outputs for for researchers yeah. that people are trying to rack up as, you know, as many publications as they can. And we're aware of the sort of perverse incentives, particularly in, this, in yeah. the South African system. It's not just in our system, but we have a particular version of it. And you know, we're, we're trying to, to, to deal with it. And it, it fits in with you know, broader things in the academy of broader issues of this very output driven, um, counting driven, metric driven uh, approach to science. And there's lots of discussion by people who are much more articulate about this than me uh, in in South Africa and, and doing reviews or being an editor is something you put on your CV but it's hard to to kind of count I mean there's now things like pablons people are trying we're trying but um, 
reviewing doesn't count as much. And I, and I, I do feel quite strongly that for science to continue to thrive, we have to recapture something of what you were talking about in terms of the writing together process, which is the process of actually caring long-term for our disciplines, yeah. caring for the people. In our, and part of that is writing reviews. So, you know, I, I have a rule for myself for every article that I send to an art, even if it gets rejected, um, <laughs> for, every, for every article that I submit for review, I have to do one review myself. So, and, and if that were the case, we wouldn't have the, the, the kind of problem. So, so getting, that's, that's been a huge thing. It was, it used to be quite easy to get reviews and now it's, it's, it's um, really, really difficult. Um, what else has changed? I mean, I think that um, just the pressure on journals which are perceived to be high status has obviously increased. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the, the number of desk rejections in my experience as, a, as an author, desk rejection for people who are, who are not familiar with it is, is when the editor says, sorry, we're not gonna send this for review for various reasons, that's gone up a lot. Yeah. Um, I appreciate getting desk rejections because they're usually quick. Yes. Um, so, um, you know, the, the minute something gets into review, you can wait and wait and wait because as editors, we know that we're dependent on our reviewers getting back to us. Um, and then the, the also, it's, it's part of what I was talking about before, the, the, and in fact, just my latest editorial in the journal is about this, because we started to see articles as sort of products in themselves which and they buy us things of course they, they buy us promotion they buy us jobs and so so there are products in one sense but something has happened where we are viewing academic articles somehow as separate from the academic thinking process as products that sort of in in themselves so we we tend to see and i see this as both as a reviewer and as an editor where people are writing not because they're trying to engage in a conversation with previous people who've written in the field, not because they're having an in interesting discussion with people or they differ from other people, but because they have to produce an article. And so one sees increasingly in my, I mean, this is completely subjective. I haven't done the research on it. I imagine it would be possible to do. But my sense is we're getting more and more of these papers which kind of go through the motions. So in fact, they often look quite nice and the statistics are good and everything is there and you can tick all of the boxes, but they're, they're sort of almost contentless because what has been lost is, is the absolute knowledge that writing in science is part of the scientific process because that's it's when you write down whatever you've done, regardless of your discipline, um, it's when you start writing and putting together and you and you pulling all your techniques of analysis, if they're statistical or if there are other techniques, into a story that you actually you actually understand what you yourself have done as a, as a scientist. And and my worry is I, I see it feels to me more and more places where people aren't seeing that. They they they, they just think I've I'll just bombard my reader with lots of technical things. I'll have lots of tables, I'll have lots of clever statistics. Um, but I'm not telling a story. And, yeah. and it's often the techniques, it feels to me, particularly, I mean, because statistics has changed so much, you know, we have, you know, it's developed so much over the past 40 yeah. years. So, so, you know, people will say, oh, you know, um, I want to use this statistical technique. 
And that's where they'll start. And that's the wrong place to yeah. start because the question is, this: what is my question? Correct. And then what is my, the best technique to answer my yeah. question? And that's what's being lost. Is that I, sense yeah. of the Yeah. And perhaps yeah. that the yeah. argument is lost because I, yeah, and I, I think that, that connects to, to losing a story and, and losing a question yeah. is that yeah. there's so many papers that throw data at you and throw yes. results at you. But the, the argument is missing and there's no yeah. golden thread that runs through the paper. And yeah. I agree with you, it'd be very difficult to, to actually study this. But I think when we work on editorial boards, we can see those papers for what they yeah. are. And it doesn't mean that it's a bad paper and it doesn't mean that it makes no contribution. But certainly through the review process, I try and encourage people to say, what is the argument? Yeah. Add a paragraph yeah. to your discussion, add a paragraph to your introduction. Yeah. Tell us why we're interested in this. Tell us yeah. why this is the thing that you chose to spend probably many, many hours on to be able to yeah. do all of the data collection and analysis and all the rest. But as you say, so it's not a box ticking exercise to, yeah. to produce yeah. a, a product. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think that some of that, I mean, I, I completely agree that it's, it's a huge problem. But I mean, also, as we pressure people earlier on in their careers to, yeah. to publish more, which I think we should be doing, and I do it um, all of the time, including <laughs> undergraduates, if, 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 if they're good. But I, I think part of what you're talking about, that making the argument, it requires a certain kind of confidence. I mean, somebody once said to me, uh, you know, that there's a relationship between the words authorship and authority. And I hadn't, I honestly hadn't thought about that. And I now use it, I now use it all the time because you are the authority of the story that you are presenting. Yeah. The statistics is not the authority. The statistics can't tell the story. Mm -hmm. You are the authority. And you as the author have to make the argument or the story. Um, you know, explaining how and how this fits in to that bigger conversation. It's, yeah, yeah, so, but it, it does take a certain kind of confidence. So, yeah, I think confidence yeah. is really important. And one of the things that I've always found interesting is that I, and I've said this right the way back to my first paper, is I don't think that my success in publication comes from the English that I did in high school or my geography degree even. I think it comes down to the fact that I did debating at high school and university. Yeah. I think that is what yeah. makes yeah. it an easy process for me and why I can write faster than most people. Because for yeah. me, the argument is first. And so exactly. being trained in argumentation and then being trained in the confidence of standing up in front of people when you've had seven minutes to compile what it is that you're going to say, that that really gives you that confidence that you can run with in, in any kind of output. So whether it's a, a lecture or an academic publication or science communication, that that comes down to the ability to think on the spot, but then build yeah. that into a coherent argument and a story. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, it's interesting that, that you, know, you recognize that it's your your training and argument which is which has given you voice and and um i've had i mean it's, it's it's quite interesting because in in psychology you get you know some students have done you've got to be a c route and some students you've got to be a route and i've i've had you know graduate students in, you know saying to me well i did a bsc and 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 um um, in science, we we don't we don't believe in in articles, um, and we don't believe in writing. 
There weren't the best students and there weren't the best. Uh, I didn't believe this, them because uh, I, I myself have a BSc amongst other degrees. But but um, but but I mean, there's this interesting idea that of science as a very, you, you know, that somehow these sort of technical things happen and then um, the statistics kind of happens and you put everything into the machine and, and that and that you're not the agent and, and what you're talking about in debating and so on is you're seeing yourself as as the agent you have to be there in your work and i think there's there's often i think a fear about you know particularly when you're doing human subjects research um of um people are very scared about being um not being objective, which is a you know obviously objectivity is important, and we need to to think about those sorts of things. So they believe that that means that I must have, you know, I'll just put everything out there, and it's it's quite, kind of going to write itself. And I mean that's not, it's just not possible. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So the last question for today is putting on your hat as editor in chief of the South African Journal of Science, but also as you say, associate editor of, of numerous other journals is. I think many early career researchers worry about their own newness in their process and that everyone will know that this is my first paper and, and everyone will know that I'm brand new. And of course, that's not the case and, and we haven't a clue. But I think if you can just briefly outline the process when a paper comes to your, to your desk and what you do look at and what you don't look at. And, and of course, I mean, the quick answer is we don't obviously have the time or capacity to Google every single person and see, oh, this person through my yeah. deep search of Facebook, this person is an honest student at this and that university. Yeah. But I think it is useful to, to really debunk that, to, to get a yeah. sense of, of what the process really is. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. We, we, I'm, I'm really not interested in who the authors are. And in fact, when I, when I teach academic writing skills, one of the tasks that I give to people is I say, think about the last academic article that you read. Tell me the name of the author. Tell me what university that. And no, nobody can. I mean, sometimes they can. But generally speaking, people can't because that's not why we read academic articles. We, we are not reading to see. Nobody reads an academic article to see how clever the author is. And that's not yeah. my concern as an editor either. I, I, won't, I can't tell by, by reading your article how clever you are. So that's, a, that's the first thing. I'm, it's, it's not a measure of, of how, how clever you are. And actually, generally, I as an editor and as, I, I don't care. I'm 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 not interested in that. And you know, the, I think the youngest person ever to publish in the South African Medical Journal was a schoolgirl. I think she was 15 years old. Wow! At the time, it got look. She had academic parents, but <laughs> but uh, but you know, it got peer reviewed like everybody else. And she has an article in the South African Medical Journal, and I think that's just wonderful because. Yeah. Science is also about, it should be about democracy of ideas, you know. Yeah. Um, so when we, when we, I, I never, ever try and work out whether this is, you know, the first time or not. And I have to say that as, a, as, a, as an old person who's got hundreds and hundreds of publications myself, I sometimes get comments, I laugh. Uh, uh, I, I had one not that long ago where you know, the reviewer kindly said, you know, this is clearly a very inexperienced author who's not first language English, and I'm a very experienced author, and <laughs> my, my first language is, is English, and I teach people how to write, um, but, you, you know, so the reviewer got it completely wrong. Yeah. Um, uh, 
but it, but it, but it did tell me I wasn't writing clearly enough for that reviewer. Um, so it's it's really not an issue. I mean, and, and this is the, the, yeah. the wonderful thing about anonymous peer review is that, you know, I know as the editor who you are and the associate editor knows. So in your case, Jenna, you're one of the associate editors, and thank goodness for you, um, on the journal, but the, but the, the authors don't know. And, and they, they often make wrong kind of guesses. So it's really about how good the work is. It's, it's, it's not about, how many times you've 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 been around the block? Not not yeah. at all. And I mean, I people can't believe. You know, people find it strange because I'm, you know, I've been a journal editor for, for years. I've, you know, and I'm I'm old and I've published a lot and I've um, got a nice age index and so on. I mean, I get, I get rejection letters, you know, regularly. Yeah. And it's and it's and in, including you, you know. People, you know, it's been said in 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 rejection letter. This person clearly has never heard of Leslie Swartz. It happens to be me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for the day that happens. <laughs> you know, you've done well. <laughs> you know, and I kind of have heard of myself, but 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 um, <laughs> but um, you know, that's that's the the beauty of it is that it actually is. It it can be daunting, but but actually. It, it doesn't matter whether it's your first or your last or, or whatever. And often inexperienced authors, I have to say, who are good, are often much more careful actually yes. about the quality of yeah. things and much less slapdash than people like me. I mean, I'll throw things together. I mean, I do, you know, I kind of throw things together and hope for the best, because, you know, because if I get a rejection, well, I've had 500 of them already. I'm not going to be so, so, so upset. It just falls on the pile. <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my, my reject pile, you know, another one. But, but yeah, no, it's not, I, I don't know if I've given you enough detail about no, that. Absolutely. But, uh, yeah. And I, I was laughing because I, I had a similar experience earlier this year where I had a book chapter that went out to, to peer review and it came back and it said, uh, well, I mean, the funny thing here was there was one rejection and two minor revisions and the rejection yeah. said, this piece has clearly been written by an honest student and blah, blah, blah. Oh. And I sat there and it was a solo authored piece and I was like, yeah. well, I do have an honors in addition to some other degrees and yeah, I have yeah. been doing this a while. And so we do. And, and I think it shows there's so much discussion about the the problems but as well as as the benefits of a blind peer review system and yeah, and yeah. i think this really is a benefit of it is that in blind yeah. peer review people are reading things at face value and yeah. the the piece of work has to speak to for itself it's not about yeah. whether you have been in the game 10 years or 40 years and how many degrees you have behind you and how many accolades yeah. you have behind you every paper you write stands on its own and has to get through that process on its own and and as you say, yeah. I think the the people who are new to the to the game, they're the people who really sit there, dotting their eyes and crossing their t's and carefully checking the journals, author guidelines and all of the formatting yeah. requirements. Yeah. I mean, the number of times I get grumpy emails from journals because I haven't done a good enough job of checking whether they want continuous yeah. or or whatever intermittent line numbering or what font yeah. they want. And as you say, I think the people who are are the only time we might notice that you are an early career researcher is just because the quality is so good because you're spending yes. so much time yes. checking that. That's abs absolutely. And yeah, really then yeah. that, that we appreciate early career researchers and we encourage them yeah. to submit to yes. our journals. Yeah. Please, please think of us. We need you Absolutely. for the future. <laughs>
<laughs> well, Leslie, thank you so much. It's been wonderful having you on this podcast. And I think for particularly early career researchers who are listening, it's so wonderful to hear from somebody who's been in the game for so long and to hear what has changed, but also what has stayed the same and, and that mm. we do all need to, to focus on building our confidence rather than trying to reach some assumed level of superiority in the sciences. And, yeah. and that's how we overcome imposter syndrome. That's how we manage to, to get our work out there and, and to really be able to create our own profiles. So thank you so much for joining well, me. On well, this. thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revise, Rebut and Resubmit. Hopefully it's given you some insight into the process of academic writing and approaching that first academic paper. If you've enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more of this show, please subscribe to this podcast. A huge thanks again to the Center of Excellence for Paleoscience for supporting this work.